This is Atolio Conversations. I'm Luke Alley. Jim Chilton is the CIO at Cengage. Once a hundred-year-old publisher, Cengage is now a $1.4 billion education technology company. Jim and I talk about how he arrived at Cengage, his approach to innovation, what technology he thinks needs to exist, and more. And with that, over to my conversation with Jim Chilton. Jim, thank you so much for coming on Atolio Conversations. Hey, Luke. Good to be here. I'm a big fan. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much, Jim. So I noticed some themes in the work that you're doing right now around education and mentorship. So maybe we can just start by talking about when you started working for Cengage and what drew you to start working with them in the first place. I joined Cengage about four years ago. And, you know, one of the reasons that I joined was the transformation they wanted to take and what they wanted to do about learning. And I think that was super interesting to me because we're a company of learners built for learners. So we actually care about the people that we're trying to help. And as someone who was a non-traditional student myself, it really resonated with me, the mission of not just transforming an industry, which I think we are well on our way leading, but that we are transforming an experience that's helping students that were like I was 25 years ago. And that non-traditional student, particularly long before there were online classes, is a very different experience. So again, for me, all the way through my master's degree, that meant that I worked all day. I went to school from five o'clock until 10 o'clock, three days a week for four and a half years of my life just to get my bachelor's degree. And so it's hard enough. But when you look at the people in this country that are both trying to carry a full-time job and be educated to get to a better place. I have so much respect and admiration for them. So to be part of that in a contributing way at Cengage just makes my day, gets me excited to be part of that. That's fantastic. And speaking of alternative learning, you're also involved in some mentorship work, which is a topic that's come up a few times on this podcast. So I wanted to ask why you decided to get involved there. I think because I have grown up through that experience. And now that I'm, you know, a five-time CIO at several successful companies is I feel like the opportunity I have now to help others with these mentorship programs and internship programs that I've done at actually several companies um, has become a passion for me as well. So when I think about it at um, Dassault Systems, which I spent you know 16 years of my life at um, before Cengage, we created an intern program with the University of North Carolina down in Charlotte, where their gaming division and their computer science professor I met with, and we actually brought in interns directly from their gaming classes to help me develop mobile applications. And so I brought in half the class every semester to help us create programs. It was a great, successful program, worked out really well. Um, The students got a great experience. I got, at the time, iOS mobile applications at an exponentially lower cost that was far better than I was getting, in some cases, from the people I was spending far more on, and I was getting it quicker. 
And so um, I'm a huge fan of the programs. Um, one of the programs that I've fallen in love with here in Massachusetts is called Apprenti, which is an apprenticeship program. And apprenticeship programs outside of the U.S. are still very popular. And it's not just about an electrician or a plumber, but it actually gets into technology jobs and other jobs when you look outside the U.S. And so this organization called Apprenti is nationwide, and they were coming into Massachusetts a few years ago, and they needed sponsorship companies. So I signed us up at Cengage to be one of the first five companies to bring that into Massachusetts. And since then, we have brought on um, 14 apprentices. Six of those have turned into full-time employees. And they really represent four or five professions. Software developer is one of them. Business analyst is another. And so cybersecurity is another. And in all those cases, we brought in some incredibly talented people from varied backgrounds, but underrepresented folks in the Boston area was the target. And I'd love for you to meet the people someday, talk to these people. I mean, they are incredible people. We have people who are you know, were stay-at-home moms who came back to the workforce after 20 years later. We have people that went to Boston College, a card school to get into, and couldn't find work. So super talented. Then we have other people who have self-taught themselves how to develop and code, but still couldn't find a way into the workplace. So the idea that we get this sprinkling, and again, I go back to this notion, when I look at my group or I look at a company, I feel like it should look like the community that it's in. And if it doesn't, there's something you got to do to fix that. And I feel like this apprentice program and other things we try to do at Cengage really have helped us get to a better place. That's awesome. You know, one of our co-founders, Mark, participated in the co-op program at University of Waterloo when he was there, and it was really formative. And we've been lucky enough to be able to work with some co-ops from there. And I'm constantly impressed by how talented they are. And I love the additional element of allowing an organization to actually reflect a community. I think that's really fantastic. So zooming out on your career again, you're a five-time CIO. You must have a plan going into these places. So have you developed your own 90-day playbook? I do have a 90-day playbook that I've used every single time, actually going way back in my career. I always felt like it was important to kind of get that assessment, that lay of the land of the company, and to really study both what the company is and what it does and who it does it for. Because it's easy as a technologist to fall right into, here's what we're doing with technology, and here's my, my world, and here's the place that I'm comfortable. I always try to go into it with, understand this in its totality. Um, and I think that has served me well, both with the executive team and the customers inside the company and outside the company, when you understand what they do and why they do it. And then one level deeper is how does a company make its money? You know, really deeply understand like what, what is profitable? What's a growth business? What's a foundation business? What's a sustaining business? Where's the future and how are you going to get there? I think I went through it a bit at Cengage is that when I started there is that I think many of the leaders were perplexed at my interest in their strategy and their future. And I want to say two years in, there was a breakthrough with a couple of the key divisional presidents where they were like, I finally understand now why you cared so much about what we were going to do in the future. I think it goes back to that earlier thing. If you really understand what the business is in, 
where do they make their money and what do they care about? I think it allows you to be far more effective in those other conversations about saying, did you even know the risk that you're taking on? The other thing that I've shared with some of the executives that I think at multiple companies is, and they never like to hear this, the systems will outlast you. They hate that statement because what you're saying to somebody is, don't get all wound up about how you're going to define how this system will work. But if you look at most ERP and CRM systems, they will be in companies for 10, 15, or 20 years, and that's normal. And I think that's something that is really important to understand um, as you move through that going into a new company, particularly as a technologist in that sequence. Now, the 90-day plan gets into all kinds of specifics around the budget, the benchmarks. You know, you can quickly assess from a technology perspective with a few key measures on has a company invested properly or not in the resources and the technology to operate the company. And then you can get enough data now about like, where is the preponderance of that spend? And it will help you identify some of the deficiencies. I love to get through all of those things in that first 90 days. What I've been told is one of the most unique things about my 90 days is that I meet with everybody, everybody. So at Dasso Systems with, in some cases, a group where I had 300 plus people around the world, when I took on the job, I had a one-on-one conversation with every single person. I didn't care if you worked on the help desk or whether you were the vice president of CRM or you were the vice president of division, everybody had a one-on-one. I wanted to know who they were, what they did, what they liked about their job, what their family was like, what they, they're just as important. You know, if you're in technology today, if you can't keep the trains on time and you can't keep the Wi-Fi working and the laptops going out, you don't get to work with the executive team on their strategies because you can't get your basics in place. So every job matters. I think the other thing that did for me, it always does, is it reveals talent. I meet people through those exercises that I'm like, this person is in the wrong job, or this person has a ton of talent that we're not leveraging. Did you even know that we have someone that has this background inside the company that's buried two levels deep? I think some of those things are super important to me when I first join a company, um, particularly, again, in this role, because I find that those misunderstandings about what a CIO can be or what a technology leader can be and the value they can bring to a company. And I feel like when you invest that time early on, you can get the rest of the company oriented around the value you and your organization can bring. I think that demonstrating value is an interesting point especially because everyone is a technologist to some degree. And they will have their opinions about what types of tools they want to use. And so I wanted to ask you about your approach to deciding where you can make room for experimentation and differentiation of technology versus not. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really good question. If you think about it as kind of layers, is that there's a core layer at a company around the non-negotiable systems. This gets into your ERPs, your revenue recognition, things that have to do with compliance and governance of how a company operates. And then I would extend it into some CRM systems and call the the customer master or record. And then you get into 
However, you're maintaining that master data model of how a company operates and how it works is at the core. That can't be negotiated. There's another layer around how do you connect those things and what are the periphery things that you have to do that allow those core ones to work? Think about like marketing systems and things that allow you to do um, different technologies around how you store images and move images and how you cache things and how you actually measure performance on the web. All of those things kind of in that periphery lens. And I think those are the ones where you truly have to partner with technology and the functions to make sure you get the right thing to achieve what you're looking for. Then there's that final layer. And I think this is the layer where people are most comfortable today, which is where can you experiment? Where do you want to give the freedom to the business to be like, yes, you should go explore that technology, go take a look at it, but keep it inside of the box for which you're thinking for us to decide if it belongs in that next layer or not. Where I find people get in a lot of trouble, both functional leaders and business units is when they go make those other decisions and then they realize that the burden of maintaining that system, the integration associated with how that system fits and connects with the other ones is too troublesome for them to maintain. Now you've got something that the customers and or the business are depending on and nobody to keep it working. And then the burden drops back onto an organization like mine that says, hey, somebody's showing up with something that they bought, that they built, that they twisted and contorted and on your doorstep now going, can you take care of this for me? No, no, we're not going to. And I think that that's where you find this juxtaposition of you can manage and regulate this and have opportunity to innovate and create. But if you just let it run amok, you will have hundreds and hundreds of systems with hundreds and hundreds of vendors with no connective tissue, no operating model, no efficiency in how you operate. So with all of that in mind, you know, how do you decide which tools elevate to the layer of you know, being worth consolidating around? We go through kind of rubrics and assessments. So we create rubrics for a lot of things about how do we make decisions and how do we select the technologies or even the processes that we have, or we focus on this macro processes, if you will, inside every company, they're largely the same. But best of breed for us focuses on what are the overarching problems we're trying to solve and what are the common denominators that we can leverage a technology to solve for. And so I think for us, we work really hard at trying to partner with the business across all the functions and try to have an agnostic view of what are all of the problems and then what potential solutions can we bring to bear? And then how do we select the technologies to accomplish the most for the many, which is not always loved by the particular function or the particular business unit, because they would love to say, this technology, Jim, will do 100% of what I want for 100% of my silo. And trying to convince people that could we all benefit from a 90% solution that is 90% for all of us. And that's not on the surface, people are like, oh, of course, we all want to work together. But when it comes down to it, that 10% gap is really tough to navigate. And I think it is something that a lot of technologists find themselves in that challenge of which will you choose to do? I would encourage people to really evaluate and understand how do you assess those technologies in a way that is truly valuable for the many 
rather than for the few. And again, going back to my earlier point is because those people may not be there by the time you're done using the tool. You know, I went through one earlier in my career where we were doing a big CRM implementation and we started off with the first CMO really defining from a function perspective, here's all the things this needs to do. And this was back when email was, was just starting to become more, um, more interesting to people. It's back in the days when people opened up emails and your open rate was really high and your response rate was really high. And, and it was audiences around the world. And we got into um, things around multi-language and around um, different time zones and when we would feed out things. And so it was, it was really thought through and it was very tailored around the CMO. And we spent millions of dollars of the company's money implementing this system around that plan and that strategy. About two years into it, he left. They brought in a new CMO. She was like, I don't know what he was thinking, but this was awful. We can't use, this is an unusable system. This does not align to my strategy. Here is my strategy. We start again, change the entire system. 1.7 years later, she left. Third person came in. Guess what he said? This is unusable. What a mess. We have now, at that point, spent six and a half million dollars on a system that were tailored around three people. And yes, you're right, the third person left too. After that, I went to the executive team and talked about how about we start using the software the way it was designed. The way it was designed represents thousands of companies' best practices and capabilities. Why don't we start there for an MVP? Why don't we start using this the way 10,000 other companies use to this? And started putting in foundational parts so that when the next CMO showed up, we're like, this is how the system can work. These are the capabilities and features this system has. These are the things you can do, and let's work to align that to your strategy. That worked out really, really well. But that's my, that's my one caution to people. As you build this stuff too much around a person and their ideas, you might find yourself in that pickle when that person is no longer there. I, I really like that example because I think it's easy to think of the problem with systems around people just carelessly picking up the shiny new tool and ultimately not being prepared to integrate or, or something like that. But this is an example of, you know, this system was put in place in a very intentional, very well thought out way by this person. But the problem is, is that it was sort of designed around that one person's idea, right? That's exactly right, Luke. And I think that what people don't understand is that, or often don't get a chance to understand is that if you're the accounts payable manager, you see it the same way. You believe that you've put together the best-in-class process and way to run and operate that. And so when you have all of these customers, if you truly listen to all of them exactly at that level, you will have a highly customized and a legacy-based system that you can't move forward from. 
And with these new SaaS-based systems that, of course, everybody is using, the second that you've over-customized them, you're now locked on an old version. You're now not getting the new capabilities and features as they emerge. So now you have really, really put yourself in a predicament. And it was interesting. We were working on a merger at the last company that uh, didn't work out. But one of the things that um, we examined during that was that one of the companies we were looking at merging had found themselves locked into an old version of Salesforce because they had done largely what we just talked about and had done all kinds of neat stuff that was very unique to that industry, very unique to that particular leadership team, but had locked them out of all future releases. And so when we thought about bringing the two Salesforce's instance together, we couldn't because they weren't current. I think a lot of companies, a lot more than you might think, are finding themselves not current. Now, as someone, again, who grew up in software and technology companies, we also hate that when people get locked into old versions and we charge them a premium, both for support and hosting, to try to motivate them to stop doing it. Yet many companies just continue to pay the bigger bill. So I do think that there's something to be said about understanding and really partnering with the business about how do you align the technology offers and capabilities with the actual strategy. Yeah. <laughs> and admittedly, I, I know that I'm tempted every single day. Obviously, this is a different scale, but I'm tempted every single day to create a new Salesforce field with like three dependencies just so that I can create a new report faster. Right. Yeah. And it's funny. It's, I think, Luke, there are technologies that are emerging that will allow us to do highly configured and still stay away from the things I described. It's when you move into that customization, once you go over that threshold, that's where you really get yourself into a weird spot. And I think the other part that I've discovered, um, and I'd be curious and you know, for your other CIOs listening, is that it's for people who don't take the time to really examine the master data model of the business that they're operating from. I think is super, super important because that does tie back to the strategy of these systems. And it's near and dear to our heart at Cengage because when you looked at a 150-year-old publishing company, the ISBN, which is kind of a unique identifier for books in disciplines like economics or accounting, if you were to examine the master data model for a publisher, all publishers, Pearson, McGraw-Hill, pick all of them, that's what you would find at the core of their master data model. You could sort and understand all the ISBNs and how they performed and how disciplines performed and how much did we do in economics this quarter? How much did we do in accounting? How much did we do in calculus? You understand it by the discipline level because that's how you think of your customers and you think about the ISBN level as your product. Now, when you do some of the creative things like we've done at Cengage with Cengage Unlimited, and now you've taken 22,000 books 600 software products, stuff that into a semester-long subscription, that discipline and ISBN doesn't matter so much anymore. Because what you, the company, and your investors are going to want to know is, what's your churn rate? How many students renewed that on the second semester? How many people bought that? Of the subscriptions of the 22,000 books, how many of them then did they open? How many page views did you get on the books that they did open? How do you start to really understand and examine that business means that your data model and how you operate is very different. 
And so all of a sudden you wake up to this cold feeling of is the data model and how this company structured together actually match our future business or just our old business? Well, I feel like I could ask you a lot more questions about master data models. But while you're here, I know that I wanted to talk to you about startups. So maybe you could just tell me a little bit about the work that you've done with startups. And then I'd love to get your thoughts in particular on what you think goes into a strong founding team for a startup. That's a great question. Um, I've helped a dozen, maybe 15 startup companies in the last 15 years. Um, some as an advisor, some as an investor, some as both. I've seen companies that have taken completely different approaches with completely different leaders, both be successful. So I'm not sure there's a secret path to success. What I am 100% certain about is that those teams that stick together on what they want to accomplish, not the specific product, but that they stick together as a team. Those are the ones that I've seen do amazing things. I've watched groups of friends and colleagues destroy each other and throw people out. I've watched venture capitalists and others help them divide and tear teams apart for the aim of creating the next round of financing. My advice to anybody in a startup, if they're doing it together, particularly you have founders and co-founders, is to never, ever forget that you being together as a team is the important part. What you generate will change this time versus next time. The money you will generate will change between this time and next time. But if you're never together after this one, it isn't going to matter. Uh, and my hope for you guys is that, again, whether it's this or this variant of this idea or some twist of this idea turning into other ideas, that's the stuff that your ability to generate and execute the ideas as a team is the value. It's not about what you can make off of this particular one. It's about your ability to generate the ideas that's the value, not the idea of how much you can sell that idea for. Oh, man. Yeah, it must have been really hard to watch those teams sort of pull each other apart like that. But hearing that definitely makes me grateful to be part of this team in particular. And maybe someday on the podcast, we'll get to talk a little bit more about the origin story around Atolio and the, and the co-founders here. But we'll save that for another time. So last question. What is the best question I haven't asked you? So many choices. What technologies are needed that don't exist, that nobody's paying attention to, and would make such a big difference to solve some of the problems that I talked about today? And I think, I think our conversations and what you folks are thinking about fall into that realm. There's one example where I met with a VC and they were evaluating another company. They were a cybersecurity company because that's really trendy a few years ago and everybody was creating one. And there was one part of what this cybersecurity group was doing that was super interesting. And at the end of it, we all chuckled and said, if they were just doing more of that, this would be a company worth investing in. But we didn't tell them that. And I've always felt badly about that because I feel like so many 
startups because I've lived through that world. You need to be passionate about your approach and what you're trying to do, but you need to be open to feedback and people need to care enough to give it to you. But it was interesting is that the part that we thought was interesting about that was this notion of open APIs and how so many companies, when you're starting out, you have these. And this notion of an open API that allows you to really leverage and partner with many products simultaneously. And this company at the time was talking about, they picked one or two or three things that they were like, these are popular, we want to, and we have connected to them via their APIs and we're representing that in our views. And what we were concluding was like, if that's all you did, instead of what you just talked about, that would be so valuable. Because part of the challenge in the cyber world is that it's so flooded with technologies and parts that in my opinion, the company that figures out how to give you a view of all the different ones, open sourced and private, because they all solve for a different problem. And then if you can get a view that allows you to really absorb what those things are telling you, you'd have a real product there that made a difference. That's largely why I'm excited about you guys and what I think you have the prospect to do. Awesome. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. Luke, always a pleasure. And uh, good luck, man. Again, I'm a big fan. I've got high hopes for you guys. Thanks to Jim Chilton for the conversation and to Tom Tierney for the music. Please be sure to subscribe to Atolio Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you in two weeks.